Okay, so some of you came in after the announcements. So um, I, asked some, I asked for everyone to do something during our reading of the lessons, and that was to listen for the question in each of these scripture passages, especially in Psalm 15 and Micah chapter 6, and then to listen for the answer that is given, and then to listen for the promise. And I hope you all were able to hear them. In Psalm 15, it was, Lord, who may dwell within your house or on your holy hill. And in Micah, it was, with what shall I come before the Lord? With burnt offerings or calves a year old? With thousands of rams or ten thousands rivers of oil? Or even my firstborn? What does the Lord require of you? Then did you hear the answers? In the psalm, it was those who walk blamelessly, who do what is right, who speak the truth, who do not slander or who do no evil, don't reproach their neighbors. Those are the ones that will live with God on God's holy hill. All of these ways of being that were mentioned in Psalm 13 are then summed up in Micah, to do justice, to love kindness and to walk humbly with our God. Each of these answers are ways of being. They are actions that we can take as individuals, but in each of these actions we are in a relationship with God and other human beings. Let me explain these relationships. The psalm speaks of those who do not slander, which to me implies there's somebody there that you could slander, but you choose not to. You choose to be in a good relationship. And Micah says that God requires us to do justice. So I question, do justice for whom? There has to be somebody else, another human being, or the environment that we would do justice for. In other words, both the psalmist and the prophet were teaching the Hebrew people that is, it is God's desire to be in right relationship with God, with other human beings, and with all of creation. In Micah, it's even pointed out that God values relationships above rites and rituals. Not that rites and rituals are not important. They remind us of things that are important, just as Laura's story about the quilt reminds her of her mother and her sister and the things they lived through. And it's a beautiful remembrance. But it's the relationship with God and other human beings that Micah says is what God wants with us. But there is one more point that links the message of the psalm and the message of the prophet, and that is the message of promise that are found in both the psalm and in Micah. After the question and after the answer, there is a promise. In Psalm 15, it's those who do these things that, is list, that are listed that shall never be moved. They shall dwell within God's house and on God's holy hill. In Micah, 
It is doing justice that God will call good. It is loving kindness that God will call good. It is walking humbly with God that God will call good. And if you go to the final chapter of Micah, there is, is even a more important promise. In this final chapter, the prophet promises that God is a God who forgives. God is a God who delights in showing clemency and has compassion on all people. So now we move on to the Beatitudes, where once again we hear God's promises, but this time from the mouth of Jesus. But first I want to set a context for these, this passage from Matthew. Thus far in Matthew, Jesus was born and gifted presents by the Magi. He and his family escaped from the murderous lead, leader Herod and fled to Egypt. When Herod died, they returned and lived in Nazareth. Jesus grew up, we don't know much about it, but we think he was probably around 30 when he was baptized by John. And also at that same time, claimed by God as God's beloved son. Next, Jesus went out, led by the Spirit, into the wilderness, where he fasted 40 days and nights. And here he confronted Satan and Satan's temptations, and was fed and nourished and cared for by angels. He returned from wilderness and settled in Capernaum in Galilee, where he called a few disciples, and according to Matthew so far, it's only been four of them, and began his public ministry teaching in synagogues and proclaiming the good news of God's kingdom. He was curing every disease and every sickness. His fame spread and he withdrew to the mountains where we find him in today's gospel, teaching his disciples by beginning his class lecturing on the Beatitudes. The first part of this the Beatitudes are the first part of a lengthy lecture that we call the Sermon on the Mount. But the Beatitudes start with this. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, and those who are reviled for their faith. Did you notice that the verb used in each of these passages with the word blessed is are, a very present tense noun. These folks are blessed now. But think about what was going on in Jesus' time in a country that was ruled by Roman Empire. How are the folks that are poor or hungry or persecuted even considered blessed? And even when all of the adjectives, poor, hungry, and mourning, etc., are given a spiritual meaning, it's still hard for me to see how Jesus could call these people blessed, or blessed, however you want to pronounce that word. The Greek word, however, used in this space is makarios, makarios. It is most often translated as blessed into English. But blessed is a quality we often attach to saints, even modern-day saints, whose lives seem so perfect, so saintly, that we can't ever hope to live up to their example. New Testament professor Margaret Amer has translated Makarios a little differently, though. She translated, translated, 
translates it as greatly honored. Makarios could mean greatly honored. And this too, while being a good option, is not quite exactly what Makarios means. Greatly honored works because it emphasizes God's plan for transformation of the world. Instead of power and prestige, God is going to honor the meek and the lowly instead of the power and prestige. Another option is to translate Makarios as happy. Yet this too, at least in our culture, isn't quite the best translation. Because it could mean happy-go-lucky. It could mean some superficial emotion. It could mean you're happy because you got a new car. Or you're happy because your old car didn't break down. Or your tires didn't go flat when you need to buy new ones. Um, so it's still hard for me to believe that Jesus' words could mean happy, could, the sense that that if we translate it as happy, are we? Happy are not those who mourn. When you lose something or someone you love, you're not happy in our 21st century idea of it. So the meaning of Makarios loses a little bit anytime we try to translate it into English. Because Jesus is describing a deeper kind of happiness. One that comes from aligning one's own will with that of God. We can get a better understanding of makarios as, by looking to the Hebrew word that was translated as happy in the Psalms. In Psalm 1, happy is the word used to describe those who delight in the law of the Lord and who meditate on God's law day and night. They are the happy ones. In Psalm 2 and Psalm 34, those who take refuge in God are called happy. And in Psalm 106, it's those who observe justice and practice righteousness who are happy. These folks are happy when their will and God's will align. The psalmist knew a few thousand years ago that true happiness cannot be a feeling that is dependent on everything going well in one's lives. Life was, at times, oppressive for the Israelites. And life is oppressive for our humanity in our time. The Israelites were happy because they lived a life doing justice and loving kindness, at least most of the time. There were times when the prophets had to rebuke them and get them back on the right path. But, you know, it helps us, I think, to understand what God's meaning of happiness is. Their lives were oriented toward walking humbly with God and Jesus taught his disciples and his followers the same understanding of happiness that we find in the Psalms. He taught it through words and by living his life oriented toward the will of God, doing justice, loving kindness, and walking humbly with God, whom he called Father. We do well to heed this understanding of happiness, a happiness that isn't dependent on material things. But this happiness also is not a future heavenly state of being. It is a state of being in the here and now. Our verbs, once again, blessed are, happy are, right here, right now. 
But as I mentioned before, there is a future component in each statement that each statement begins with, a, with Makarios, blessed are. But then Jesus continues by giving a promise similar to that promise found in Psalm 15. The end of each one of the statements in the Beatitudes is something like this. Those who do these things will never be moved. They will abide in God's tent or dwell on God's holy hill. Jesus promises the poor will receive the kingdom of God. The mourning will be comforted. The hungry will be filled. The merciful will receive mercy. The pure in heart will be called children of God. The persecuted will become the kingdom of God. The people who listened to that beatitude class heard Jesus describe them as happy even in the midst of their struggles, and they also heard that same promise that good things would come in the future. Jesus not only spoke these words, he also struggled along with his disciples and followers. He ended up being crucified. He ended up being oppressed. But all along, he was the example of someone whose will aligned with God. So we, as followers of Jesus, who promise to follow Jesus' example, who promise to do what we can to do the will of God, we who have promised to follow Jesus' example in our lives have one more question that we need to ask and we need to answer. We will, or will we, as followers of Jesus, echo the promise of God in our hurting world, world here and now. Not just in the words we speak, but also with every step we take. I cannot answer for you, but what will your answer be? Amen. <laughs>